Welcome to episode 351 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker, author of What, When, Why, and creator of the supplement line Avalon X. And I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Spina, sports nutrition specialist, author of Keto Essentials, and creator of the Tone Breath Ketone Analyzer and Tone Lux Red Light Therapy Panels. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and ketogenicgirl.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment. To be featured on the show, email us your questions to questions at ifpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. So pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine if it's that time and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in 
a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 351 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Vanessa Spina. Hi, everyone. What is new in your life, Vanessa? I mean, seeing as we're now in 2024... (laughs) I have a new baby. What else is happening? I'm really excited for this new year that has arrived. And and 2023 was absolutely amazing. So I'm like very excited about what's to come in 2024. But yeah, what's new with you? Well, this is funny. No, here's a question because I actually got an email. I'll do a shout out because I know you listen to the show. Damon, who's awesome. He's actually a moderator in both two of my Facebook groups and my IF Biohackers group. And my Lumen CGM Aura, I have, I have a group for all of those different devices. He was commenting on the, the time shift, how, you know, how, how we record a while back and we, and we talk about things in the past, but it's actually a different time. And he said he likes hearing what we're doing, even though it's in the past. This would be a good poll. I should poll the audience, you know, like, do they want to hear what's actually happening, even if it's like way outdated, like around holidays and stuff, or do they want to hear stuff relevant to that time? Yes. So for listeners, I was just being silly because (laughs) it's the end of October for us, but I know that this is airing in the new year. So I was like, there's going to be a lot of new things when this episode comes out, but yeah, it's, it's a a couple months away, just like two and a half months away, but it's, I'm so excited for the new year. I'm just like, I'm already excited for it. But yes, I I like the idea of the poll, but I don't think there's really much we could do about it unless we were like pretending we were in the future. Like I did when we started the episode and it felt really like unnatural and weird. So so funny. Yeah. What's new with you? I did get asked to be a speaker at a biohacking summit in Dubai. Ooh, that's super exciting. My travel skills, I don't think they're up there yet. You know, it's its hard sometimes. Like I, I think I love speaking and I, I've been taking a break from it for a couple of years. I, I was asked to speak at a biohacking conference. I think it's in Norway or Finland or Sweden. Sorry. I know which one you're talking about. That one. Is it the... The winter one, not winter, but I just think of winter because it's up there. They're moving it to the to April now. And I said no before because I have Luca and I'm just like, I feel like I'm in this season right now where I'm just like not in that mode. Like I feel like you have to be in that mode where you're like, you have your presentation ready and you're like doing it all the time and you're like speaking on a regular basis. And when you get out of it, like I've been for the past couple of years, like having a baby and now a second baby, it's like, I know I need to get back into it, but it's hard to get back into it because (laughs) I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to like stay in our little like cozy bubble. And, but yeah, I think those kind of events are so much fun and 
you know, if you, if you do, you know, go and present, I think you'd have an amazing time. Thank you. I'm not going to. And <laughs> um, two thoughts about that. I don't have a desire to be a speaker at events. I would much rather attend them and like cap out with that. I l- you don't l- enjoy speaking. I love speaking. Well, I do love, okay, wait, let me backtrack. I love being on stage. I do like, I think I would like speaking. I think that the issue is that I also want to really enjoy the event. And so energetically, it just seems like a lot if I was also a speaker. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. Like you just said. But that's what I mean. Like you, sometimes you get in like a groove and a zone and you're just like, I have my talk down and I loved like the one that I, you asked me about what was my favorite talk. The one that I had on autophagy is my favorite. Anytime someone asks me to speak, I'm like, can I talk about autophagy? <laughs> Cause it like gets me so excited that I love geeking out about like the macrophages and like the whole cellular cle- like I love talking about it I love presenting about it I think if you have a topic I've had other talks though where I didn't feel that way about them and I didn't look forward to speaking as much and I would also get more nervous before presenting especially when I was talking about myself and like my health journey and experience I really don't like doing that on stage and but then when I started to find topics where I'm like, this lights me up, that's when I started, you know, I think it really comes down to the material that you're presenting. And like, if you feel fired up about it and you feel like the audience is going to have some like mind blowing moments and like huge takeaways, and they're going to feel like that was really, really valuable. Then I, I think that makes a big difference in how you feel about it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. I think if I could, if it was like an event and I could just go and speak and yeah, I, I really actually think it's just the other factors of, I would love it, but I would be so drained and then it would be hard for me to enjoy, especially if it's like a multi-day conference. Yeah. I mean, you know yourself best, so, you know, you got to reserve your energy for what you want it for. So many things. I guess in the meantime, there's all the virtual summits. Actually, I will have just done, are you doing the inter- that fasting summit, the Dr. Jockers? No, I I haven't heard of it actually. I don't think I'm I don't think I have like a reputation as like an intermittent fasting expert. Like that's definitely more you. That makes sense. I'm I will have just done hopefully people are on my email list. I will have just done a fasting one in December. That should be pretty fun. I think they have some pretty good people lined up. Melanieavalon.com slash email list. Do you have an email list link? I do. Oh wait, but you don't oh we talked about this. You don't really send emails. I'm starting to. I'm starting to again actually. I've been I've been reviving it and I'm really enjoying it. I'm starting to send out email recaps of like my best content and posts about different studies that week and I'm really enjoying that. So, but I've only done one so far, so I got to maybe monthly cuz I was like I need to do this weekly and that was it's just like too much right now. But maybe monthly I can do it. But I do have a sign up on my website when you go there. There's like a a pop-up. I should get a link though. For mine, it's pretty automated. So like I do the the Friday email announcement every Friday for the show. And then if occasionally if there's something I really want to promote, I'll send it out. And then I the crowd favorite is the gift guides, like the holiday gift guides, because it's I put all of the Black Friday deals all in an email. 
And then for Christmas, like all the deals and my, my recommended gifts, people find that really, people like wait for that. They're like, you know, please, I, I actually have on my calendar because oh, I got to, I got to create that email. It's going to be happening. It's going to be happening when I'm like traveling to London, which is going to be a lot, but that's okay. I had one other thought about that. Well, if you do start creating more emails, you could always use chat GTP. Yes. We were texting about that. I, I think I probably should. Like, what are you getting it to write for you right now? It's so helpful. Okay. So like right now, and I want to like update listeners on like things I'm creating and all that stuff because there are so many things, but there's so many things right now. And I'm not sure which one's going to manifest first that just giving it a pause. Like right now I'm working on my food sense guide app, switching it to subscriptions. So it, it should already be subscriptions by the time this comes out. So creating a free trial so people can try it for free, which is great. And then it will be a subscription model. And then I want to update it with some features but when we're working on it, I needed a terms of service. I needed a privacy policy. So I went to chat GTP. I was like, write a terms of service for Melanie Avalon's food sense guide app. And it was like, bam, it just like spit it out. And it was like almost perfect. And then I was like, well, I wanted to say, like, I, I wanted it to have more information about not serving as like medical advice. So I was like, can you add a clause about not working as medical advice? And it gave me, it added like, the perfect clause. With a privacy policy, I was like, write a privacy policy for Melanie Avalon's Food Sense Guide app. And it would just spit it out. That's great. That's really helpful. So I like it for things like that, where it's not like creating content that's pretending to be me. It's like, I literally just need a terms of service. Like, doesn't really matter who wrote it. I do get worried about authenticity and things like that. Yeah. The more I'm using it, I'm like, oh, this is very helpful. That's really good. Yes. So anything you need to write stuff like that for with your products, maybe it can help. Yeah. At least even, you know, just start it so that, you know, you can then go through it after and like tweak it or whatever. Yeah. It'll be really exciting when it can be more updated to more real time because it'll give you the, like the latest that its database goes up to. So it's a bit dated still, but... Well, anything else or shall we jump into things? Yeah, I would love to jump in to the questions, our fabulous questions. Okie dokie. All right. So our first question comes from Shelly and this was from Facebook and she wants to know, does eating a lot of protein help with sleep? I love this question and it's really interesting because I was saying in our last episode that I was thinking about the bio-individuality, because there is really interesting research, I think on actually on both sides, like some affirmative, some negative. But a lot of the research that I have looked at in the past has been how pre-sleep protein ingestion helps with muscle protein synthesis. So I really, really like this for people who are really looking to build muscle. Like if you are someone who's either professional bodybuilder, amateur, or you just really want to build muscle, it's an amazing way to actually help you build muscle. And especially for people who really need it, like who are sick or elderly, it's an amazing way to help. There's a really interesting 2019 study that talks about how eating protein right before sleeping, it 
actually is really effectively digested and absorbed during overnight sleep. And it increases the rates of muscle protein synthesis. So it doesn't appear to reduce appetite when people have breakfast the following day, and it does not appear to change resting energy expenditure or metabolic rate, but it's sort of looked at as sort of a protein supplementation that has a really beneficial effect on increasing muscle mass and strength. So people like the research has shown that it's very beneficial for helping to preserve muscle mass in the elderly, especially when combined with any physical activity or muscle contraction. And eating protein before sleep is also an effective interventional study to increase those rates of muscle protein synthesis during sleep to support skeletal muscle adaptive response to doing resistance training. So I've always really liked it for people who do resistance training. And I think it could be really beneficial, like especially for certain populations who need that support with building muscle mass. It can attenuate muscle mass loss in hospitalized older adults as well. So certain, especially clinically compromised older populations who are combining it with exercise, they can really improve their muscle mass with that overnight muscle protein balance. Because you have a lot of, you go in this catabolic state when you go to sleep and you have higher rates of muscle protein breakdown, which is why it can be really effective to eat protein, you know, prioritize protein at your first meal of the day. So you come out of that muscle protein breakdown phase, but there are certain populations that can really benefit from that. So I know the question was more about quality of sleep. And I looked at some resources on this. In particular, there was an interesting study which talked about the connection with the with the amino acids. So it was looking at how basically protein provides tryptophan and tryptophan can be converted into serotonin, which in turn can be converted into melatonin. And melatonin is that sleep hormone that regulates our body's sleep and wake cycles. What's really interesting about melatonin, there's so much research coming out about it right now where people kind of thought that we need melatonin to sleep and have good sleep quality. But it seems like that was one of those like correlation, not causation situations where actually the reason that melatonin is associated with sleep is because if you get good sleep, then you have this melatonin rise and it's a mitochondrial antioxidant because there's so much repair, like your mitochondria is being repaired while you sleep. So you want to have a lot of melatonin. It's not necessarily melatonin that's like making you sleepy, although it can have that effect. It's more so that it rises when you're sleeping because that's when you go into repair, which is really interesting. But the recommendations on eating protein before you sleep is to choose something smaller. Like don't have a huge, huge amount of protein before sleep. For most people, if you just like have a huge protein meal and then get into bed, it might not be the most comfortable thing. And even just saying that makes me physically like uncomfortable (laughs) because as you and I have talked about, a lot. I like to go to bed with at least three hours or so since I've eaten. Four hours is like ideal. I really don't like the sensation of getting into bed feeling full. So I also think there is some bio-individuality, but the research clearly shows it's great for helping support muscle protein synthesis. 
it can be great in helping, you know, provide the amino acids that you need. Although there's also other things needed, especially like morning light, getting UVA light can help with those amino acids that are actually, it's initiated through the light being detected by melanopsin receptor in your brain. And then there's these aromatic amino acids sort of like behind your eye and there's this cascade. So you're getting that morning light and not having exposure to blue light a lot at night can really help make sure that you have a good amount of melatonin, but protein during the day or before sleep, I think it can help, but there's also that bioindividuality. Like how do you feel when you get in bed? I know Melanie, you've talked about how you like to go to bed feeling full. Whereas like for me, that's the worst possible thing. I just don't feel comfortable like that. So I think you also have to see how does it affect your sleep and and sort of try it out and tinker with that. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. Okay. So many things. First of all, I'm really glad that you talked about that in the beginning about the muscle protein synthesis, because I had not looked that up at all. So that was really, really good to hear. I'm trying to find, because I actually, I got so excited. Do you have these moments when you are reading studies and they talk about something that you were wondering or like you specifically wanted to be talked about and then you like find a paragraph talking about it and it's like, ah. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was like, yes, tryptophan, serotonin, melatonin. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like so exciting. So I actually... In one of the studies, because I was looking over reviews of effects of diet on sleep, and one of them had this random section where it was talking about, I kind of want to tell the history about this because I thought it was so fascinating. They didn't say this specifically, but so I don't want to make this assumption, but it was talking in the um, study about how the first... Well, I was talking about how the first study on milk and sleep, because, you know, we often think about, I, I feel like there's this idea that like you drink milk to go to sleep. At least that's what I was told growing up, that like milk was like a sleep inducing thing. Maria Emmerich always talks about this like bedtime snack. With milk? Yeah. I, I just know like it's, I don't know, my mom always told me that milk, or, and my grandmother, that like milk was like a thing. So the first study to examine this, oh, it wasn't even just milk. It was the first studies to examine the sleep-inducing effects of a specific food ever. It was in the 1970s, and it was testing Horlicks, which was a malted milk drink. So they weren't testing just milk. They were testing milk with this Horlicks powder and compared to a control. So that Horlicks powder actually contained wheat, malt barley, sugar, milk, and 14 vitamins and minerals. And what I thought was interesting about that was, I just wonder if from there is where we got this idea that milk supports sleep when really it was this milk drink with other stuff in it. But what's interesting, and this is what relates to what Vanessa was saying, they did a lot of studies surrounding that. And one of the studies, they looked at people who usually ate within an hour of bedtime called the eaters, and those who did not normally eat before bedtime called the non-eaters. And they found that the non-eaters slept best after consuming what was basically nothing, like it was an inert capsule, compared to the eaters, they slept best when they actually had this Horlicks drink. 
And so the authors concluded that it was probably an individual's dietary habits that primarily influence their response to food. So basically, and they talk about this as well, that the issues that often come with a high nocturnal food intake, and that includes protein, affecting sleep quality is probably their postprandial discomfort from digestive activity. In other words, what Vanessa just said, like not... <laughs> you know, feeling overly full or not digesting it well, that can negatively influence sleep if that's not what you are used to, if that's like not what you do. And I was just so excited because when I was reading all these other studies, they would say that a lot. They would say that a late night meal wasn't conducive to sleep because of the GI distress or the postprandial distress. But then this one little clause was talking about how it, it, it really probably comes down to if you do that normally or not. I was so excited. So basically, if you're used to eating before bed and that's what helps you sleep well, you probably will sleep well after eating compared to if you're somebody like Vanessa who does not enjoy that visceral experience, then you probably will will not benefit from a large meal before bed. So to comment on the, the other things, I went down the rabbit hole with what Vanessa was talking about with the protein and the tryptophan. So yes, I went down the rabbit hole because basically the studies are a little bit mixed with protein meals before bed. A lot of it does have to do with what I just said about the individuality of whether or not literally digesting something is what you're used to and if that's conducive to sleep or not. So that's factor one. But then a huge factor is the role of tryptophan. And so it's funny because people will often say that turkey makes you sleepy because it's high in tryptophan. So they'll say that. And then you'll read, no, that's actually not the case. It's really just because you're in the post-food coma from that huge Thanksgiving meal. And it's not really the tryptophan. I think it's actually pretty complicated. And here's why. So yes, like Vanessa was saying, tryptophan does help support sleep by converting from tryptophan to serotonin to melatonin. Which, to clarify about the melatonin, I as well have become really interested in the role of melatonin in in mitochondrial health and how even taking supplemental melatonin, not for sleep per se, but for the mitochondrial benefits is fascinating. I do want to clarify, though, it does make you, it does induce sleep, right? Like, it just doesn't keep you asleep, but it does, like, instigate the falling asleep state. Are you saying that they don't even think that it creates that effect. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get up to 39% off or $300 off one of my favorite air purifiers ever. That's right. Up to 39% off or up to $300 off. Keep listening. So as you guys know, I am obsessed with clean air. It has such a profound effect on my health, my experience of the world. I notice a huge difference when I'm in clean air versus not. And I keep the air in my apartment so clean. When the apartment maintenance people came to check the air ducts in all of the apartments, they said to me that my apartment had the cleanest air of any apartment in the entire complex. And these are people who are literally checking the air in the apartments. You guys know I am all about cleaning up our exposure to toxins and our air is one of the main ways that we are exposed to those every single day. Think about it. You are literally living in the air 24 seven. 
And Americans today spend 90% of our time indoors. And according to the EPA, did you know that indoor air can actually be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air? We're talking about the off-gassing chemicals that come from your furniture, from all of the products that we have, from the plastics, our cleaning products, VOCs. Whenever you're cooking, you can release toxins. And then don't even get me started on viruses and mold. I personally, in the past, lived in an apartment with mold exposure, and it my health. It really was the catalyst and what I like to refer to as the black hole part of my life that I had from living in mold. That was before I was using air purifiers. I am thrilled that this podcast is sponsored in part by Air Doctor. I already had an Air Doctor unit before we partnered with them. So when they reached out, I was an immediate yes. I was like, please let me share this with my audience. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. Oh, do not get me started on the pet dander. I am so allergic to that. In fact, every time I go over to my parents' house, they have lots of pets and I'm just like, can I please get you some air purifiers? So if you would like all of that out of your air, you need an air doctor. What I love about Air Doctor's mission is they actually have a mission to make pure, clean air affordable and accessible to everyone because I know air purifiers can be expensive, so they wanted to change that, make it accessible, and make units that could fit everybody for the exact type of unit that they need for their lifestyle. The units are powerful enough to circulate the air in a 630 square foot plus room four times per hour and have multiple filters. They have an ultra HEPA filter as well as a carbon gas and trap VOC filter. And what I love is they look very stylish and they are so quiet. So friends, I have had a lot of air purifiers in my life. Air Doctor is the only one that I run while podcasting. So yes, those WhisperJet fans are 30% quieter than the fans in ordinary air purifiers. So especially moms, if you have kids and you want to protect their health, you want them breathing clean air and they will be able to sleep because these machines are so quiet. What's also super cool is their auto mode sensor. The Air Doctor auto mode really works. Whenever I'm cooking in my kitchen, if I cook some meat on a grill, it immediately springs into action and then I can hear it because then it goes into high mode. It's very, very impressive. Every time it happens, I'm like, oh, it really does know. And Air Doctor has an incredible, fantastic, amazing offer for our audience. It's time to get peace of mind with Air Doctor. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, you can just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code IFPODCAST. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to $300 off. That's right. You can lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code IFPODCAST. One last time, that's up to 39% off or up to $300 off if you go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code IFPODCAST. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I don't know exactly. I just know that a lot of the latest research is showing now that the fact that melatonin rises when we sleep is because it's doing all this mitochondrial repair, whereas we've always thought of it as we need melatonin to rise in order to go to sleep. Which I think we do, like, because it doesn't induce that state, but then you're saying, like, it's rise after, because we know it doesn't keep you asleep. So like if it's 
rising while you're sleeping, presumably that's not to like make you fall asleep, like you're already asleep. And it's presumably not keeping you asleep either because that's not its purpose. So I'm guessing, this is just me extrapolating, I'm guessing it does help induce falling asleep, but then the endogenous upregulation of melatonin is that that role in the mitochondria, I'm guessing. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you take melatonin ever? No. (laughs) I do know, though, that it's very confusing on the amounts. So I've heard some people say that the physiological amount of melatonin that we need is actually not in grams. It's like much, much, much smaller than that. I don't know if it's like micrograms that we're supposed to be taking. So when people take melatonin for sleep, it tends to make them really groggy because most people are overdosing on it. And I did a melatonin experiment and I found that it helped me go to sleep two nights in a row. It helped my sleep onset. But then by the third day, it made me extremely groggy. And that's always the experience I had with it in the past. And then it was, I think it was Matt from Bioptimizers who told me that it's because most people are taking way too much. So they came up with this like sleep spray so that you can sort of dose, like you can microdose the melatonin in these tiny amounts. And that's actually what we need. Then I remember hearing you and Cynthia talk about how you were taking these like mega doses of it because it is this mitochondrial antioxidant. So I was like, I don't understand. It always makes me groggy. So I I just don't like to mess with it really. No, I mean, that's everything you said. I'm just like, yes. I feel like that's so much of the confusion and experience surrounding melatonin. And I know I told this story before, but I, and I might've even told it to you about that time that I literally took a whole bottle by accident. Did I tell you that? Yes, you did. And that was one of the funniest stories because you were like, you thought it was your digestive enzymes. I thought it was my digestive enzymes. Yeah. Because it was, they're like the same bottle and they're the same capsule size. It's the same everything. And then like the next day I I like pulled out my digestive enzymes and no, no, I pulled out my melatonin and it was like gone. I was like, oh, (laughs) that's what happened last night. You said you had like an amazing sleep, right? Yeah. And the funny thing is I, I didn't perceive being super groggy or anything. And I really do wonder if I had known I had taken that, if I would have felt way more groggy. I imagine I would have. Like, did you ever end up feeling groggy? From that experience or in general? From just that experience. From that, n- no, no. Like, I I don't have any memory. I, I did, yeah, I didn't have any memory experience being groggy. And then the next night when I realized I had taken a whole bottle, I was like, oh, okay. That explains, I don't know. <laughs> but what's interesting, I have had the experience you said of sometimes feeling groggy and sometimes not. And I have a theory I have a theory about this. I don't know if this is accurate. I wonder because of eating and like when I take it, does it ever, do those capsules ever, and again, this is super like not real science, but do those capsules ever end up digesting at at later points some nights than others based on the context that they're in? And then would that like affect the timeline of the release of it? That's why I really like what you just said about a spray. Like something where you could instantly get it into you and be a smaller dose. That sounds pretty, I should make one of those. It makes so much sense, right? Like 
that you could just microdose it. And it scares me when I think of people taking these like massive, massive doses when, you know, with supplements, like sometimes you do more harm than good. You know, <laughs> like I've talked to people who specialize in studying microbiota and the microbiome and they're like, I always ask them like the same question <laughs> and I'm like, do you think people are kind of like overdoing it with their probiotics? And it's just so funny because they're all like, yeah, because like we know probiotics are good for you. And then people started selling them in stores. And then the mentality is always like, well, I should get the billion or the trillion, you know, whatever the probiotic with the most, you know, lactobilis or, you know, the most this or that. And it's like, well, we don't really know, like, is that optimal or not? Like, but we just always think more is better. And the biggest dose is going to generate the best response when like there's situations where even like, you know, that study with the athletes where they took vitamin C and it actually made their performance worse because you, they needed to generate the antioxidants themselves in order to get better at their performance. And so it's like, there's just so much that we think that we know what we're doing and like we don't. So there's often situations I'm like, I think it's better to just not (laughs) because like you could end up making it worse than, but I think it's much safer with like a, a microdose probably. No, I love that you said that about the probiotics and, um, it's interesting. I was actually listening last night. Have you listened to Peter Tia's most recent episode where he's I was going to ask you about it. I haven't yet, but I, when I saw the Q&A come out, I was like, I bet Melanie's going to listen to this one. Because I was like, I really want to listen to it. I'm very much enjoying it. <laughs> Surprise. Any big insights? Or- I'm not done with it yet. It's Peter answering Q&A about longevity-related topics and his most current thoughts. And one of the questions they asked was his current supplement routine. And he does make it very clear that this is like his current supplement routine right now and, you know, that it is different in the past and it'll be different in the future. And that's a reason that he doesn't like talking about it. And same with me. When he was saying it, I was like, yep. Like, I don't like talking about my supplement routine because it does change. And I feel like if you say something, it gets crystallized. It's like, oh, this is what Melanie does. I feel like sometimes I'll see in Facebook (laughs) or sometimes I'll see comments and I'll be like, like there'll be like a comment and then somebody will comment and be like, well, Melanie says blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa, like <laughs> that's like not, <laughs> it's not even like always accurate either. So yeah, he talks about his supplement routine and he talked about a probiotic now that he sold me. Now I'm like, oh, I want to try that. He said he picked it based on, he thought it had the most, the most impressive clinical research behind it for its effects on blood sugar control and reducing HbA1c and diabetics, which I found really interesting. And I wanted to see which which strains were in it. I'll have to, yeah, so I'll have to look up what it was. I will say with the uh, the probiotics, I find a lot of benefit from just having like I, I think going the fermented food route can be helpful for a lot of people. So I'll just have like, and it doesn't even take that much, but I'll just have like a little bit of sauerkraut every night and that really, really helps me. That's what I do. I'm like, just eat the fermented foods. It's so much better than taking a, you know, a pill. I love that. I do still, although I love Bioptimizer's P3OM. I've been talking about that for years. I, I still love it. What I love about it is that it's not a histamine. It's like one strain 
I like the ability of having one strain and not having the super histamine producing strains. And it's specifically a protein digesting proteolytic probiotic. It's a lot of, it's a lot of peas. Yes. I like it too. I, it's the main one that I, I have, but I just haven't been taking it as much because I prefer to get it from just from food, fermented foods. Sauerkraut is really big in check. So like <laughs> it's, it's a big part of the lifestyle and sort of cultural what's food culture. Well, my background is German. So sauerkraut is like in my, in my veins. So yay, sauerkraut. How do we get on this topic? Okay. Cause melatonin and supplements. So that's why. Yes. And to answer your question, he did have, I'm still listening to the episode, but he, the takeaway so far is he does not think in the near, anytime in the near future, we will be able to massively extend lifespan. He thinks that's all a lot of talk and that there's not a lot of actual things happening and that it's going to take a major discovery and it probably won't happen. He, he doesn't think like in his lifetime or in his lifetime to the point where it could have an extension of his lifespan. They're saying now that our children are the first generation to be born that is going to have a shorter life expectancy than ours in history. So we're not really cruising towards like extending lifespan right now. Yeah. The health span issue is the health span and the lifespan. It's crazy because on the one hand, it's like two paths. We have this path of degenerative disease and health issues related to our diet and our environment and our lifestyle, which is going one direction, which is the direction you just mentioned, reducing lifespan. Then we have this, these technological developments to discover, you know, modalities to extend lifespan potentially by, by combating these quote, hard limits, these proverbial hard limits related to aging and mortality. So it's like two, two completely divergent things happening. The thing that haunts me is when he talks about cardiovascular disease risk and being on statins and, you know, because he really thinks that if you really want to obliterate your heart disease risk, you need to be on pharmaceuticals. Don't agree. He's, I don't know. (laughs) He's getting to me. I'm like, I don't know. So in any case, back to the protein and sleep and all the things and the tryptophan. So I was talking about the milk and this is funny or interesting, Vanessa. What are the odds? Did you know they have done studies? Did you know? Did you know that the time that you milk a cow affects the amount of melatonin in the milk? That's crazy. Yeah. They've done studies on, quote, nighttime milk. So if you milk the cows at night, there's more melatonin in the milk. I have seen that with human breast milk. So you're not like you're supposed to, if you pump your breast milk, you're supposed to only give your baby the breast milk that you pump during the day because it's going to have more cortisol and the breast milk that you pump at night, or you should pump at night and give them that breast milk at night because it'll have more melatonin. Isn't that crazy? And yeah. And people have babies like who are up all night because they're giving them milk they pumped in the morning, which is like higher in cortisol. Wow. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I, w- I was reading this last night, and I don't drink milk, but I was like, I want to make a nighttime milk product. I want to, like, find the cows and, like, milk them at night. Like, 
Oh my gosh. Like the promo, I could like dress up like a. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the milk, the milk girls. A milkmaid. Milkmaid. German milkmaid. They have those costumes. They're really cute. I like really want to have a milkmaid brand now. Like nighttime milkmaid. Nighttime milkmaid. Avalon X. (laughs) That's really cute. So the study is on it though. So they did one study where they looked at milking cows at nighttime as opposed to daytime. They did a long-term crossover study and 70 elderly patients with dementia to look at the effects. They actually found no effect of the nighttime milk over eight weeks on sleep quality. But they did find that when they drank the nighttime milk, that they had greater morning and and evening physical activity, which was seen as beneficial, which is interesting. Another study showed that melatonin-enriched milk improved sleep efficiency and reduced the number of, of awakenings in middle-aged adults with insomnia. And nighttime milk, which has, like I said, has melatonin and tryptophan, which I'm going to circle back to, shortens the onset and prolongs the duration of sleep. So basically they fall asleep faster and they sleep longer in mice and it has a sedating effect. So yeah, there might be some, I'm, I'm actually pretty shocked that a major brand has not done this yet with their milk, you know, like this could be a thing. That's why I want to do it. Even though I don't drink milk, I might do this friends. I'm not kidding. Maybe if I'm at like in like five years or six years, in like a decade, if I'm just like an entrepreneur mode, it's like doing all the things. There's so many things, right? It's like, it's hard to choose sometimes what you put your energy into. Yes. And this is something where like, just to make a quick comment, for example, like Blake Lively, who I, I really love Blake Lively. She's been getting some backlash because she, she doesn't drink alcohol, but she released a, in her beverage line she released an alcoholic drink and she got backlash because she doesn't drink i actually and i'm just thinking about it this would be the situation with me and the milk like i would totally do this even though i don't drink milk like i think you can still create something if you believe in it for whatever reasons for certain people even if it's not what you use of course yeah so just tangents there back to the trip to van so <laughs> Tryptophan is an amino acid, like I said, and we said, that leads to serotonin and then melatonin. Here's the thing, though. It's complicated. You can't just eat a lot of protein high in tryptophan and be like, yay, all the tryptophan, I'm going to fall asleep. Does not work that way. Why? Here's why. A few different reasons. One, tryptophan only has this magical ability to do everything we just said if it crosses the blood-brain barrier. In order to cross the blood-brain barrier, it competes with other amino acids, specifically large-chain neutral amino acids. So those are called LCNAAs. So if you have a high-protein food, it's often high in both tryptophan and these large-chain neutral amino acids, meaning the tryptophan can't get into the brain because it gets outcompeted. However, there are a few things that address this. Certain proteins have a higher tryptophan to LCNAA ratio. 
So basically there's more tryptophan than those other amino acids. So the tryptophan kind of wins and gets into your brain. And so that's the case with a lot of plant-based proteins as well as egg protein. It has one of the highest tryptophan to LNAA profiles. Interestingly, one of the lowest profiles is in dairy. And then when it comes to those plant sources, nuts and seeds have the highest tryptophan content compared to the LNAAs. And fruits also have a really nice ratio, but they're so low in protein that it's not quite as applicable. There's another way around it though. So if you have carbs, they release insulin. Insulin actually preferentially reduces the those large chain neutral amino acids in the bloodstream, but does not affect tryptophan. So if you have protein with carbs, you reduce those competing amino acids, and then the tryptophan can go into the brain. So that's why having protein with carbs can actually be a way to help support your sleep. There's actually been a ton of studies on this, and that's generally the vibe. But as per usual, there's always, you know, they'll find different things in different populations. And one of the studies was talking about this, and they said it probably has to do with the individuality, it has to do with how these are all set up different. Has to, like there are just so many factors, but probably on just a purely mechanical basis, proteins with a higher tryptophan to large neutral amino acid ratio is helpful, and then pairing it with carbs. And then just some studies, that, for example, in general, one study found that participants experienced, they woke up less during the night when they had a high protein meal. Two studies looked at the effect of, oh, I thought this was interesting. It looked at calorie-restricted, energy-restricted diets, but with protein. And they are like basically with like focusing on protein. They found that their sleep with 20% protein intake had the best improvement in their sleep compared to less 10% or more, which was 30%. Interestingly, in that one, they found that the source of protein did not affect it. So just talk about how things were conflicting. So they were looking at beef and pork versus soy and legumes, and they found that they didn't find a difference there. Another study looked at low protein intake, which was less than 16% of energy, and they found that it associated with poor quality of sleep, and it was slightly associated with difficulty in falling asleep compared to high protein intake, which they call uh, greater than 19%. That actually had issues with staying asleep. So it seems like, again, kind of like the study I just mentioned where 20% was a sweet spot and compared to 10 or 30% with this one, too low had issues, too high had issues. The best seemed to be, I mean, presumably the best would be somewhere in the middle. And then to comment again on the carb aspect. So in general, that carb pairing with protein might be beneficial, but the type of carbs probably matters. So they do not find that carbs from sugar So more refined carbs seem to have a negative effect on sleep. Fiber seems to have a beneficial effect, and it's probably the whole foods forms of carbs that are more helpful. So not like sugar, sugar, not, this is not saying to like eat a lot of sugar to fall asleep. That's probably not the way to go. And then I got really excited because in one of these studies, they were talking about fasting and sleep. 
And they were talking about how there actually was not a lot of studies on diet and fasting and sleep, which I thought was pretty interesting. So one study looked at the basic takeaway from the few studies that it looked at was that fasting did not have a super measurable effect on sleep either way. I would actually like to go down the rabbit hole and like see if there are more studies, but that wasn't my focus of research when I was looking this up. And then just because it was talking about it, I will point this out there. There have been some studies on certain foods supporting sleep. And specifically, one thing I had experimented with, which was like tart cherries. Have you ever have you ever taken or used tart cherry juice, Vanessa, or had tart cherries? I've definitely heard about it. And there's another one too that's it's something with bitter lemon or something, but I, I haven't tried it. There was a period of time where I really had pretty bad insomnia and I was trying all the different things and I would do the tart cherry juice. And I mean, yeah, it it would really help me sleep and it's really high in melatonin. There are actually a lot of studies. There was, there was a whole section in one of the papers on tart cherries and then just normal cherries, but the data is pretty supportive of those cherries having a sleep promoting effect as well as kiwis which made me happy because I love kiwi. Reason I love kiwis, kiwis and pineapple is they both have enzymes that help digest protein, which I definitely went through kiwi phases. Are you a kiwi person or a pineapple person? I don't think I've eaten those in like over a decade. <laughs> oh my goodness. I had my pineapple phase. Really had any fruit other than berries. Oh, right. I forget who I'm talking to. Yeah, I'm like, pineapple? Like, that's like, to me, that's just like pure sugar. Like, I can't, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just how it affects me is not good. Like, when we were talking about, like, insatiability, for me, that's what, like, high amounts of carbs do for me. Although, I still want to test it with high protein. I haven't really done that before. I still want to do that. But for me, if I have a lot of like sugar, especially in fruit, I just like makes me ravenous. Like I just want to eat all the time. So that's one of the reasons I haven't had it in so many years. Two comments on that. One, hands down, the least inflamed I ever felt, and listeners know this if they've been with me for these past six years. I, I mean, I went through a period of time where I was eating so much pineapple and the amount of proteolytic enzymes I was getting from that pineapple. I mean, it just like, it was, I think it was crazy what it was doing beneficially. And and if you think about it, if you ever get surgery, they'll tell you, I mean, this has happened to me multiple times now. They suggest having pineapple like before and after for the recovery process. And I just think that's really telling that you could do it acutely for like surgery. So like, think about if you're having it as a, a staple of your diet, which I did for so long. And the reason though, the reason I haven't brought it back is I I feel like, I don't know if it's age or whatever, but I feel like I can't tolerate as much now that high sugar content anymore, which makes me sad. I have like goals of like becoming a pineapple girl again, but I've just been doing blueberries. Oh, which side note, I got so excited last night. I was reading an article. This made my day. It was about frozen blueberries being better for the antioxidant potential than fresh blueberries. And, you know, I eat like pounds of frozen blueberries every night. It's because the uh, ice crystals that form actually break down, like the 
the antioxidants are found largely in the skin. And something about the ice crystal structure affects how it makes them more accessible to your body. That's interesting. And one of my friends, she's Sylvia Tabor. She's known as like the biohacking chick. She did this thing with pineapple. I just wanted to mention it. I know we're not talking about blueberries now, but she did this experiment with crazy amounts of MCT oil powder and pineapple. And we did a whole podcast about it because she lost like 20 pounds in a month or something doing this. And everyone wanted to know what she was doing. And it was like she was doing this MCT oil powder and she was taking like quite a bit of it throughout the day. And then there were like quite a few people who came out who were like in the low carb space who were like, there's no way that that's like that that's real. And it became really controversial. And then I had to like, we did this live and I had to take it down because it was like getting so much. Like You took it down? Yeah. It was just, it was like too much. It was like, I was getting like hundreds of messages a day from people who were like demanding to know like what she took exactly, how many times, how many grams, which product. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like it was just so insane. (laughs) We still had the podcast episode, but it created this like frenzy of interest in people who follow her and me. And it was like, I have to just, I have to stop. And then I just like shut it down (laughs) completely. Like I purged all the content about it. Cause it was like, it was so crazy how, how much it affected people. That's so funny. I remember that time. That's when actually when we became, I mean, I guess we're kind of like friends. I, I We started talking on Instagram during that whole time. She actually reached out to me, I think, originally because she knew I had been talking about MCT oil and adding that to my diet. So we had a whole, what you were just talking about. So we had a whole conversation. We were talking a lot about it back then, one-on-one. I always found her so fascinating because... I just looked at her Instagram. Now she shows her face, but she would never show her face on her Instagram. Yeah. It was always her abs. It was always her body. And I was like, what does her face look like? But now her, now her profile is her face. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really interesting. And I actually had Sylvia, I had talked with her as well about all of that stuff with the MCTs, especially when, because I had, and I've talked a lot on this show about using MCTs with diet and losing weight, but I never combined it with high carb. I was doing low carb with MCT oil. And I know she does the powder. It's a whole thing. Yeah. So yes, I think though, I think we tackled it pretty much. Did we answer the question about protein and sleep? I think this is such an important topic and I love that we both explored different areas of research on it. And, you know, I, yeah, I think we, we covered it pretty in depth. Awesome. Me too. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. A few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at iapodcast.com or you can go to iapodcast.com and you can submit questions there. These show notes will be at iapodcast.com slash episode 351. And you can follow us on Instagram. We are iapodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Vanessa is ketogenic girl. I think that is all the things. Anything from you, Vanessa, before we go? I love this topic. I'm so grateful, as always, for listener questions, feedback, and support. And I can't wait for the next episode with you and excited for the start of 2024. I know. Happy 2024 to you. I will 
See you next week. Sounds great. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman, editing by Podcast Doctors, show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner, and original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.